Hi, my name is Hans Klevers. I'm a scientist in the Netherlands. Uh, I'll give three lectures, three talks. Uh, this is the first of three. And in those talks, I'll try to give you the history um, of, of my field, the discoveries that we made, and the technologies that we ultimately developed to generate organoids. What you see here is the, uh, the gut of a, of a mammal. Uh, could be a mouse, could be a human being. Uh, you already start appreciating that the inner surface has these protrusions that extend the surface of the gut dramatically. This helps us to very efficiently digest food and take up nutrients. The cells on those villi are exposed to a very threatening biological environment, as you might realize. And that is probably the reason why they only live for a few days. And they're constantly being replenished by cells that come out of these structures that are called crypts. You see them here. Um, and in the story that I'm going to tell, I try to, to show you that these multicolored cells at the base of the crypts are the stem cells that drive this incredibly active self-renewal process. The crypts of Lieberkuhn were named after this guy, a German young scientist who defended his thesis several centuries ago in Leiden, in, in the Netherlands. His thesis was only 32 pages, but it was actually um, in Latin. And with Google Translate, he managed to figure out what he had done. He actually had uh, infused hot wax into uh, human organs, mouse organs, uh, cooled the organs down, uh, then digested away the tissue and through a magnifying glass and, and using etching techniques, he would then produce an image of what he was seeing. And you can see the vascular skeletons of the microvilli in, uh, in this piece of tissue looking from the inside. And when he flipped it around, there were blood vessels clearly on the outside of the gut, but you might also appreciate that here and here there are these tiny white circles. He realized they were protruding small spaces outward from the lumen of the gut, and he called them crypts. And we now know that these are the homes of the stem cells of the intestinal tract. This is a much more modern view of the same structure. So here you see a villus. You see many other villi in the background. This is a crypt of Lieberkuhn. There are about uh, 8 to 10 or so that surround the base of the, of the villus. Um, cells are constantly being produced by then enigmatic stem cells that reside somewhere near the base of the crypt. Their daughters very rapidly proliferate. They take two days to reach the exit of the crypt. They then differentiate out into one of a number of cell types that you see here. They move up the, uh, the villus, and about four or five days after they are born, they reach the tips of the villi that you see here, and they undergo apoptosis. They commit suicide. So when we first saw this, we saw this as a fantastic model to study stem cells, but nobody really knew where the stem cells were. And we had an, an entry into this, uh, into this system. We go back 30 years when I first started my lab in, in Utrecht, uh, and uh, Mark and Mariette and me cloned a gene that we called TCF1, a DNA binding factor that we hoped was a transcription factor, but we could never show that it regulated transcription. It just bound DNA. Much later, we realized that actually uh, there are partner molecules that TCF uh, works together with. And one of them what gave us a lot of insight called beta-catenin in, in mammals or armadillo in flies. And what this protein was, was known to do, it was the endpoint of the wind signal transduction cascade. There's a lot of biochemistry from many, many labs in genetics that have solved how this, how this works. Um, wind signals will activate their receptors. You see them here, fizzled and LRP. This will uh, normally, uh, the system breaks down beta-catenin, the key signaling molecule in this pathway. Um, when a wind signal is occurring, which you see here, 
the breakdown of beta-catenin is stopped, and now beta-catenin is stabilized, it accumulates. That was the state of the field in 1995, 1996, and we realized that beta-catenin then goes to the nucleus, it binds TCF, and it activates transcription. Uh, in cancer, it was known that APC, in colon cancer in particular, APC is often deleted. It's a tumor suppressor protein. Uh, we and others, particularly the Vogelstein lab, then showed that the loss of APC, here you see APC has lost parts of its, uh, of its reading frame, um, makes this destruction complex inactive, and in the absence of a wind signal on the outside, you now see that, sorry, the beta-catenin accumulates, uh, goes to the nucleus, and activates uh, uh, TCFs, target genes, as if the cell is receiving a wind signal, which it isn't. At the same time, we realized that normal wind signaling that had mostly been studied in embryology, in young flies, uh, embryo, uh, embryos of mice, of, of frogs, was also active in adult uh, bodies. And in particular, when we blocked the wind pathway, the process of rapid proliferation of these daughter cells in crypt, so this is a real crypt, this is a real villus, KI67 stays the, stains the proliferating cells. You see there are many proliferating cells in crypts. The moment we block the wind pathway, we go here, all of the active proliferation is gone. Uh, and we then predicted that somehow wind is crucial to maintain adult stem cells. So these are the stem cells that reside in our bodies. Every organ has its own uh, types of stem cells. The gut would be one, and we thought if we can find this stem cell, this would be fantastic to understand how adult stem cells really function. At the same time, we realized that in cancer, this process goes wrong. And you see here, this is a small tumor in a mouse that has an APC deletion. And um, um, this actually, to us, suggested that the normal proliferation of the stem cells that you see here and the active proliferation of cancers in the gut are reflections of the same situation. Normally, you need wind signals to drive the activity of normal stem cells in a regulated way. They make exactly the right number of cells. Cancer uses the same pathway, but it actually is no longer controlled, and it keeps on producing stem cells. This leads to an adenoma, and later on to an adenocarcinoma. Now, Nick Barker, a British postdoc in the lab, uh, took, up, took upon himself to try to find these stem cells. And knowing that wind signaling was crucial, and, and with a crucial collaboration with Pat Brown, who had just invented microarraying in the uh, early 2000s, we managed to solve the gene program that is controlled by wind in cancer. The genes are activated by wind in cancer. And we found that the exact same set of genes was activated in normal crypts. So indeed, crypts and cancers are very, very similar. And working our way through this gene list of about 200 genes, uh, Nick came upon this gene that's called LGR5. Very little was known about it. And he made a number of knock-in mice uh, into the LGR5 locus. This one was particularly telling. So he knocked in... GFP that you see here, and he knocked in uh, another reading frame, QERT2. If this mouse would work the way it was designed, the uh, mice should have green cells in their crypts, and those green cells would express QERT2. It's a recombinase that is inactive normally, but you can activate it by injecting tamoxifen into the mouse. Why did we did th do this? Well, we want to, first of all, visualize the stem cells. Here you see one, two, three villi. You see about five crypts. Um, on the blow-up here, you can see these tiny little cells that are green. They're LG5-positive potential stem cells. In between are the much larger pennant cells. They're in black here. Um, 
So now we had a mouse where the potential stem cells, we hypothesized these were the stem cells, where they emit light. This would not allow us to prove that they are the stem cells. But then Nick crossed this mouse to another mouse that is a so-called Cree reporter mouse. And when we now activate the Cree by a tamoxifen injection, that will only happen in these cells that you see here. They will turn blue in the situation in a permanent fashion. That means when they, when they divide, the daughter cells will no longer be green. They are no longer LD5 positive, but they actually will keep their blue color all the way to the tips of the villi. And that's exactly what Nick had hoped to see. Uh, this summarizes a lot of his experiments. We gave a low dose of tamoxifen, so we only marked one of the about 15 or so stem cells at the base of the crypt. He leaned back, and over the next few days, he saw that the cells move up. They're blue. Uh, by about day two or three of the experiment, they exit the crypt. They take up one of the uh, different cell types that are present in the gut. There's about 10 or so different cell types. Um, day three, four, five of this experiment, the cells move further up the flanks of the villi. See that happening here. Uh, they are now um, heavily involved in digesting and taking up nutrients while keeping all the microbes and all the chemicals that are in your gut, keeping them outside of your body. And by day four or five, they're essentially totally worn out. They reach the tips of the villi and they undergo apoptosis. Now, if we don't analyze the mouse after five days, but we wait for two years, we still see these blue ribbons starting in the crypt and going all the way up to the villi, implying that the cell that we mark in blue is long-lived. That was our first characteristic. Uh, and in the ribbon, we see all of the cell types of the gut, implying that this cell was multipotent. It was a cell that could make all of those cell types. Long-lived, multipotent, that was our definition for stem cells. Now, Hugo Snippert and Lawrence van der Vlier, two PhD students in the lab, uh, thought it was a bit of a boring experiment. Now, we have 15 stem cells. We can all turn them blue, or we can turn one of them blue. They came up with a fancier way of looking at this system, and they designed the uh, confetti mice based on, a, on the rainbow mouse of Jeff Lickman at Harvard. And what this mouse allows us to do is to stochastically mark stem cells with different colors, starting from no color. In the simple version of the experiment, you get four colors. In the more complicated version of the experiment, you can see 10 false colors that commuters can, can unravel. And um, this is the situation you get after stem cells are forced to pick a color. And our animator, Jeroen Huyber, predicted that the following would happen. You see about 15 of these stem cells. They can all pick their individual colors when we instruct them to do so. Um, they'll start working. And a little bit to our surprise, and Jeroen had predicted this already in this movie, you see that slowly but steadily one of these stem cells takes over the entire crypt. We realize it's not because it's the best stem cell. It's a stochastic process that I'll try to explain in the next slide. Um, this was the prediction of Jeroen that the inside of the mouse uh, should look like, and indeed he was right. These are... Um, pictures of the tissues that we got from these mice, and another blow-up. You can very nicely see, for instance, here a blue crypt producing blue daughter cells, a red crypt. It also illustrates that multiple crypts reside around the base of the villus, and you get these parallel zebra-like bands of cells that move up the villus. And these mice will be like this for the rest of their lives. To explain a little bit the reason behind this experiment, um, we see that over time you start from a multicolor situation in one crypt to a situation where you end up in a single color. You could argue, well, maybe the blue cell here is the real stem cell, but what we actually noticed is this is not the case. They're all stem cells, 
they divide every day, very surprising finding. And if they do so, they go from 15 to 30. There's only space for 15. You randomly throw out 15 and, and occasionally use a color. And sooner or later, you'll end up with a, with a single color. It's called the competing neighbors or the neutral competition model. And we believe that many stem cells work in this particular way. Um, First, we thought we've identified a unique cell type. Then we realized that the blonde in the 60s and the 70s with Hazel Chang had actually seen these cells. And many of the papers that we then published in, in high-flying journals turned out to be not so original. Uh, all was already predicted by LeBlanc in these old papers. Beautiful work. And then we realized that even Joseph Panet uh, in 1887, when he described the Panet cells, these are the cells, these large cells that you see here, they're at the base of the crypt, beautiful, well-known cells, um, that actually he had seen the panet cells, but it also noted these slender cells you see here marked with an S. Briefly, I thought that Panet was maybe the first person to ever recognize the existence of stem cells, but then, and this is in German, um, his S here doesn't point to stem cells, although they are the stem cells, but he uses it to... Uh, to uh, indicate that these are small cells or slender cells, schmale cells. Beautiful work again, and, and more than a century old. So now we have a stem cell. This cell here is an ELG5 cell that in the crypt proliferates through its daughters and then makes a different set of, of daughter cells that you see here. Um, but how plastic is this system? It's, it's, people would assume that the stem cell is the key crucial cell here. If you lose it, the gut would collapse. That would be a very dangerous situation. So we had indications, and Doug Winton independently, that cells higher down the hierarchy here had actually uh, the possibility to return to a stem cell state, although they were already under the way to become a hormone-producing cell or a mucus-producing cell. Um, the best, I guess, the, the most clear-cut experiment was not the, the original experiment. It was done by Paul Tete in my lab. And what he did is he marked uh, stem cells stem cell daughters that are on their way to become enterocytes. And enterocytes are these very abundant cells on the villi. Alkaline phosphatase is a beautiful marker for these cells. And you realize that when you look in a crypt, that the gene starts being expressed, this alkaline phosphatase gene, about halfway up. So here are the real stem cells, early daughters. Halfway up, they decide to become enterocytes rather than goblet cells or penis cells or intraendocrine cells. Um, express alkaline phosphatase, they move up. And three or four days later, they die. And then they get replaced. So what Paul did is he made one of the mice uh, along the lines that Nid Barker did to prove that the LG5 cells were the stem cells. He inserted Cre-ER into this locus. And the, uh, exactly as expected, what you do, if you mark the cells, you'll see blue cells on the villi. You see the occasional cell in a crypt that you see here. And if you now follow them over time, they move up and up and up. By four days, a few of them are still there. But if you wait, for instance, a month, uh, all blue cells are gone, as expected, because we're not marking a stem cell. We are marking a progenitor cell that is fated to make enterocytes only. That was the easy part of the experiment. He then crossed his mouse to a mouse in which he could, at will, kill all the LG5 stem cells, a mouse made by uh, Fetter Sauvage at Genentech. Uh, and, and the intention now was the following. We will mark one of these daughter cells in blue that would normally move up, become enterocytes, and then, and then disappear. But the next day, we kill the green stem cells. And now we ask, can this cell that was on its way out, essentially, and could only make enterocytes, can it go back 
in between the penna cells, the large brown cells, and can it retake up the fate of a stem cell and become, again, long-lived and, and uh, have the potential to make all of the cell types of the system rather than just uh, enterocytes. That's exactly what he saw. This is a, uh, uh, a photograph of a gut of one of these mice. This is actually a pyrus patch. All, every blue dot that you see here is a crypt in which one of these progenitors that was presumably short-lived and could only make enterocytes, after losing its stem cell deep down in the crypt, had turned around, moved back into the crypt, to the, to the crypt base, and, and reverted from an enterocyte precursor into a real stem cell. And here you can see a ribbon that's produced from the crypt all the way up to the tip. Um, and these persist not just for days, but they persist for the lifetime of a mouse, indicating that in the scheme of the, uh, the stem cell hierarchy, this cell or this cell actually normally will go up and disappear, but when the stem cell is killed, they turn around and they replace the stem cells. And this is not a rare event. You can see it's a massive event in this picture here. This implies that the gut has a fantastic defense mechanism against viruses or toxins, because if you lose your stem cells, there's always a cell that will survive a crisis. It can go back, turn into a stem cell, and literally in a matter of days, uh, repair the tissue. Uh, and after one or two weeks, you wouldn't even be able to see that, that the crisis had happened. So now that we had these mice where we could see the stem cells in action, we saw many things that were unexpected. We saw that the stem cells were not uh, rare. They were very abundant. We saw that they divide every day, which is very unexpected. There was sort of a, a strong belief that stem cells should be quiescent, should not divide very often, because when they divide, they have to copy their DNA. They can make mistakes, could lead to cancer. Um, so that was a very logical uh, uh, line of reasoning. However, for the gut, it's not true. Uh, we know that in a mouse, stem cells divide every day, a thousand times in the lifetime of a mouse, serial uh, cell divisions. And based on this, uh, Toshi Sato, uh, Japanese gastroenterologist, joined my lab and asked whether he could possibly recreate in a dish the conditions that normally uh, are around at the base of the crypt that would allow a stem cell to proliferate and make daughter cells. And the real intention of this experiment is start from one stem cell and make many, many stem cells, like people have been growing embryonic stem cells or, or iPS cells. Uh, what we didn't know then, but I give you the background now because it explains what happens in these cultures, is the following. LGR5, uh, you see it here in blue, is a seven transmembrane surface receptor. What you see here are again the, the wind co-receptors frizzled and LRP, and in this animation, you'll see that wind will bind to its co-receptors, bring them together, signal will be initiated, and as I just told you, this leads to the stabilization of beta-catenin. You see it happening here, wind binds, signals go through the cytoplasm to the nucleus, beta-catenin activates TCF, target genes are expressed, and in this process, a number of re negative regulators are induced, including RNF43, ZNRF3. These are E3 ligases that put ubiquitins on the active surface, uh, receptors and remove them from the surface. This is a very, very rapid process, happens in one or two hours, and is the main reason why wind signals are always brief and always weak. And that's what you want in developing embryos, where things move fast, but you don't want this in a stem cell. An adult stem cell needs very prolonged, very robust wind signals. That's where LGR5 comes in, in blue here, and its ligand, our spondin, that we found after the fact, essentially. And this combination will absorb away the E3 ligases. So when you are a stem cell, you have LGR5. When our spondyl is around, you remove uh, the E3 ligase. And now a wind receptor that's active will stay active on the surface for days rather than hours. 
And if you read out the strength of the signal, it goes from 5-fold literally to 500-fold. Would be very bad in development, because the development would get stuck, but it's fantastic for a stem cell. That is actually what keeps gut stem cells, and now we know many other stem cells in an active state. So we didn't know this when, when Toshi first uh, did his experiment, where we lay our hand on a lot of our, our spondin from a company, Nuvello, that was trying to develop our spondin because it was known to be a wind agonist. It wasn't known how it works. It works with LG5. We used our, our spondin. Uh, we also decided that we would need epithelial growth factor, uh, a very potent growth factor for many epithelial cells. And from an old experiment, we knew we had to block noggin, uh, sorry, block BMP signaling. BMP signals uh, in the gut drive differentiation. If you block them, you get many more crypts. And we decided, uh, based on work from uh, Minna Bissell, that we should not do this in 2D, we should do this in matrigel in 3D. And matrigel is an extracellular uh, like. Uh, matrix-like uh, 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 component. Toshi started with a single stem cell, put it in a very simple cocktail of three growth factors, no serum, in a gel in 3D, and had hoped the next day to see two or four or eight stem cells. But he got something very different. You can see here structures develop. They look very epithelial. They look a little chaotic in the beginning. Um, and when he started looking at them, he saw indeed a lot of structure. You can see here there appears to be a central lumen. There are buds that stick out. Um, and by, by looking with EM and confocal and many other ways, he realized what he had created was not just a lump uh, of, of stem cells. It was a structure that recapi recapitulates the normal structure of the gut, uh, contains all the cell types of the gut epithelium, and even the cell types would be in the right location. So in green would be the stem cells, in between are the penis cells, these are the rapidly dividing daughters. These are the villus equivalents, so all other cell types you would find in this region. And even being born here, proliferate for two days, work hard for another two days, and then end up in the lumen of the gut as a dead cell is, is conserved between the real gut and what he called the mini-gut. Very surprising that a single cell without any specific use other than these growth factors can build a tissue. Uh, this actually can be... Uh, taken to the next level. You can see on the top right here that organoids quite easily fuse if you put them together. And uh, by placing these organoids in, in collagen gels where you have long bundles, they line up. Norman Sachs uh, did this uh, a few years ago. And they form tubes that can be up to two, two, three centimeters long. And again, everything is in the right place. All the cell types are there. It's really starting to look like a, like a real gut. Very, very surprising. We still know very little about what controls these processes. This is 50 million years of evolution, how to build a gut. But these cells know exactly what to do if you put them in the right starting position. We can grow these cells for many, many years. Um, we and all our colleagues would argue, well, these are not normal cells anymore. They must be cancer cells. Um, the ultimate test would be to see if you can transplant them and see what happens. Uh, we did mouse to mouse together with our collaborators in Tokyo, led by Mamoru Watanabe. They had come up with a, a way of transplanting epithelial cells and organoids to the gut. But Toshi in my lab added, he started organoid cultures from one cell, 10 micrometers in diameter, grew about 100 million cells, sent them to uh, Mamoru and his people in Tokyo, and they infused these organoids into the guts through the anus of about 40 mice that were treated with DSS. It's a very well-known colitis model. So you have areas of normal epithelium inside that you see here. So the, the, the Dutch red mini-guts are floating around. Uh, the moment they see these um, ulcera, these ulcers, 
uh, where the XLR matrix is exposed, they will actually touch down, open up, and like a living band-aid, seal these lesions. Uh, very surprising how efficient they can do this. The only way we can actually recognize them, and you can see that here, is using the confocal microscope. Everything that's black here is the Japanese mouse. Everything that has a color are the offspring of this one Dutch red stem cell. And uh, in all of these mice, Mamoru could find patches of red tissue. Um, by any other means, this looked totally integrated, totally normal, and the only way to see where Japanese, Japan ends and, and Holland starts is to look for the, for the red color. And then one prediction would be this will develop into cancer. This never happened. Another would be these stem cells are exhausted. They've, they've grown so much in culture. That's also what we don't see. So really, this looks like we are growing normal mini-organs starting from normal single stem cells. There was a, um, well, there were many, many questions uh, how this could actually happen in culture. One would be that uh, if you look at the crypts, you see a nice crypt here, a bud in the, in the mini-gut. This is the lumen. You see the dead cells actually accumulate here. Um, there is nothing around these crypts. People had argued in, in, the, in real life there are myofibroblasts. They make a basket. They create in a nice niche environment that allows the stem cells to, uh, to create daughter cells lifelong. They're not here. Um, we provide growth factors, but the growth factors are everywhere. So there must be something in these mini-guts that instructs the crypts to be here and the, the villas-like domains to be in other parts of these mini-guts. So Toshi uh, then realized that if you go back to the LJ5 mice, where the stem cells are green, you see green, 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 penna cells are black, so now with the confocal we slice through a, a number of crypt bottoms, and every circle is a, uh, is a crypt that points towards me. Um, and he realized there's almost geometrical organization. So a stem cell is always surrounded by penna cells, and the penna cell is always surrounded by stem cells, as if they have special meaning to each other. And he, are, he asked, well, maybe the penna cells are really the, the niche cells that, that instruct stem cells to behave like stem cells. There are a lot of experiments that confirm this, but this is the most elegant one, I think. Um, he realized that when we sort epithelial cells from crypts, epithelial cells don't like to be on their own. They like to be in, in, uh, in, in an epithelial organization. So we have to do a sloppy cell suspension, rapidly sort. We get single cells, but we also, on the facts, we get areas. If we gate here, we essentially have two cells that are stuck together. And when you zoom in on the singlet cells, you can get green stem cells and red pennant cells, and there's no event that is both. But if you zoom in on this quadrangle here, you now have events that are green and red. And if you look through the microscope, they are, they are a large purple red pennant cell, and there's a good example here, on which there is a small stem cell. And every doublet that he sorted in this way is a large pennant cell and a normal stem cell. What I didn't tell you yet is that if you take entire crypts and you culture them, this always works. But when you go down to single stem cells, they have a hard time. Only 1%, 2% will actually make it to the first step to make a small mini-gut. From then, they're fine. But this first, first step is very difficult for them. Um, if we now, rather than just a single stem cell, we plate out a single stem cell stuck onto a pennant cell, 
we're almost back to 100% efficiency. Uh, so now these things will grow out, and you see how fast this goes. And in a matter of a day, there's already a small lumen. By two days, there's probably already 10 or so cells. And it turns out that the planet cell is really the organizer of this whole process. And if we follow the movies, what you see is that, that say, on day one, you'll see a planet cell. On day two, there's a little bud. And on day three, there's a real crypt. Penicel goes out and repeats this whole motion. So it really recreates um, large numbers of scripts. It's really the, 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 the organizer of this whole process. The, the, the stem cells just follow where the penicels are. Okay, as you know, when you write the first version of a paper, it is never perfect. Referees always complain about missing things. And actually, we had one complaint from a referee that said that possibly you're looking at a very special pair here. It's not the general penicel and then general uh, stem cell, but there's, they have a special relationship, and that's why they do so well. So the proposal was that we would take a sorted penicel, a sorted single stem cell, and put them back together and see if they would easily create a mini-gut or, as we, as we call them now, organoid. Um, that we couldn't do, unfortunately. Single epithelial cells are very unhappy. They die rapidly. But we could actually do this with populations. Stem cells only would just sit there. Penis cells only would only uh, sit there as well. But if you combine the two, and in this case it's, I think, yellow stem cells and red penis cells, we'll get a spectacular event. You see that the, uh, the penis cells essentially chase down, you see it particularly here at the bottom, they chase down like, like shepherd dogs where the stem cells are, round them up, and recreate uh, this beautiful small uh, mini-gut, mini-organoid. Um, implying a very special relationship, again, between penis cells and stem cells. We didn't really know how to disinterpret it, but it actually... Uh, uh, dealt well with the referees' uh, complaints, and the paper got published. Is there a, me me a mechanical explanation why penis cells would be so helpful to stem cells? It's actually quite simple. Uh, when we look at gene expression profiles of stem cells, we get here notch uh, wind receptors. We see LJ5 here. And then here we see penis cell markers well-known for the production of lysozyme and defensins. They kill bacteria, so they're like the bodyguards of the stem cells with these molecules. But you immediately notice there is actually wind produced, high levels of wind. You see it here in blue by these penis cells. Crucial growth factor for the stem cells. Epithelial growth factor, you might recall, it's in the organoid uh, growth factor cocktail. Notchal ligands. So essentially almost everything that a stem cell needs to grow is provided by its direct neighbor, the penis cell. And that's why we think it's such an important cell in the biology of the crypt. And here you can see that actually this is a, a mini gut with two buds. Penis cells would be here and here. Um, they produce wind. And in this wind reporter gut in blue, you can nicely see here is a high wind signal. And then when you go out of this crypt-like structure into the main lumen, you can see it's a wind gradient. This is where the cells differentiate out. This is where they live for another two days. And then this is where they die. So the penicel set up this wind gradient, and that is essentially how you go from a ball to these beautiful mini-gut structures. Now, using these types of assays, we've sort of decoded the entire hierarchy now, and I go, don't go into great detail, but we know exactly how to take a stem cell and turn it into an enterocyte by blocking wind, keeping notch on, turning it into a secretary progenitor by blocking, blocking notch and wind, and then you can essentially, again, go through all of these decisions, and eventually, in culture, from many guts, you can make any cell type that, that happens in the... Uh, that occurs in a normal uh, intestinal tract. So with that, I'd like to end this lecture, and I thank you very much for your attention.